Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast on those terrible shootings, the horror of the mass killings in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. We spoke with Victor Venegas, the news director at KTSM Television in El Paso, also with John Zogby, the founder of the Zogby Poll and national op-ed writer in the United States, Dr. Zudi Jasser, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on the battle with the Trudeau government over the carbon tax. Not just his battle, but five provinces are joining Saskatchewan. And Finn Poshman from the Fraser Institute on the taxes you and your family pay. Yesterday we had an opportunity to speak with Victor Venegas. He's the news director at KTSM Channel 9 Television in El Paso. And Mr. Venegas is back with us on the program to start today. Victor, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. How, how is El Paso one day later? One day later, I think it's, it's still a little somber, um, you know, being uh, a highly Hispanic community and, and in turn very Catholic. Um, Sunday, going to church, um, you know, everyone that we've talked to has just been kind of, you know, not depressed or anything like that, nothing that bad, but just pretty somber about it. But at the same time, um we're seeing a lot of people jump into action um before uh vitalant the local one of the local blood banks opened up this morning at 8 8 a.m for continued blood donations there was actually a line of people outside the building an hour ahead of time um and as of right now the wait is approaching four hours and they're only open till five so um you know people keep coming out some local uh churches are having blood drives as well and we're just seeing a lot of people coming up, stepping up. Um, we are also getting a lot of uh, feedback here at the station from viewers, um, just telling us, you know, the the, the new um, um, hashtag is a hashtag El Paso Strong. Um, and, and all we keep hearing is people talking about how this we're going to show how, how great El Paso is and how strong we are. Um, it's, it's really, um, it's a mixed bag today. I think a lot of people are happy to help, but at the same time it's like, Exactly what I told you yesterday. You know, you always say, "Oh, that'll never happen in my in my 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 city, my town." And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, what's the latest from uh, police, the mayor, the governor? Um, as of right now, the governor did leave yesterday after he made his appearance here. Um, they had a press conference probably about an hour and a half ago. Um, FBI, police, the mayor. Um, the big stuff that came out of it is that the U.S. District Attorney John Bash. Uh, he told us that the FBI is treating this as a uh, domestic terrorism case. Um, additionally, the uh, El Paso District Attorney, Jaime Esparza, uh, told us that the state will be seeking the death penalty against him. Um, you know, and this is as, as we're, you know, the reunification center, which is where everyone's supposed to get together after, uh, you know, to find their loved ones yesterday, has kind of turned into a grieving center today. Um, so there's there's that activity going on as well. Um we're starting to get a little, we're, we still don't have any word as far as investigation, you know, any motive or anything like that. Uh, but they did tell us they're being, they're being very meticulous. I think the one thing that is slightly disturbing, and this it's not just here, it happens at all, you know, these mass shooting investigations, is uh, the bodies remain inside the, uh, inside the store um, this morning. So, um, 
it's you know and 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 the police addressed it they're trying to be very meticulous looking at every shell casing every every possible location um you know and so but he even talked about um during the press conference about knowing what the smell of blood is and and mm-hmm. and never forgetting that and and when he went to the scene that's that's that was the overwhelming um um smell that that, that he got um and then additionally we did hear through police sources that um the police have sent undercover um, officers into all the Walmarts here in El Paso just as a security, cause, security uh, precaution. And Walmart had told us yesterday that they would be open today with uh, increased security. So um, definitely, you know, you wake up to a different world here in El Paso, but uh, um, we're we're still coming along. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's directly affecting your daily activities and your, your life today. I think we're all waking up to the understanding of a of a different world, um, and we're going to be talking about that as we go through the program today. Victor, I remember speaking with a police officer who was uh, at a mass shooting, and it was the same situation where they didn't move the bodies for some period of time because they wanted to be careful and do things correctly. Mm-hmm. And what that police officer said to me was one of the most eerie things was the phones kept ringing. The phones of the mm-hmm. victims kept ringing. The victims. Yeah, because their family members were trying to, friends were trying to locate them. There are so many, I'm- sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say we we actually um, we were at the uh, the blood drive this morning. The one where people are lined up outside, and we happened to, to find one of the victims of at, at this point is remains a, a missing person. Um, his name was uh, Andres Benavides, uh, elderly gentleman, about eighty six years old. Um, they haven't been able to find him, um, so we we did get in touch with them about that and. And, you know, we were talking about it, and that's what he, he told me the same thing. He's like, we keep calling and calling, and it keeps ringing and ringing, but no one picks up. Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly what came to mind when you mentioned that. Because I, I, I've, 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 you know, been, been doing journalism now for, this is my 31st year. And that, that, that you know, what the, what the chief said, and, and like, like you're mentioning now, those, those are things that you'll never forget. And, you know, especially with the overnight news with, with Dayton, I, I, you know, after I left the station almost at 1 o'clock this morning, um, you know, I, I went and, and talked to some family and stuff, and the overwhelming. That's when Dayton started popping out, and it's just like, you know, what a what a world has changed. And and you know, here in El Paso, um, even the city manager mentioned it during the press conference. Uh, you know, they, despite that this is very fresh for us, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, "We want to let the people of Dayton know that we're with them, and obviously we know what they're going through. So you know, we're here for them." So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good to see my community, my city coming together. Unfortunately, it's under these circumstances. Uh, with us now is our good friend John Zogby, the author of We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in the 21st Century America. He's the founder of the world-famous Zogby Poll, principal of John Zogby Strategies, op-ed writer for many uh, U.S. media like the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times. John, uh, thank you for your time. It seems you and I sure. talk mostly when something has gone seriously, outrageously, or tragically wrong. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true, and things are really going tragically wrong this weekend. Is is El Paso a complete aberration, or more a case of this level of violence, as horrid as it is, isn't entirely unexpected in America today? It's not entirely unexpected. Unfortunately, it's being enabled and enabled from the top. Words do matter. And when you have a president who refuses to uh, uh, deal 
with the fact that there are there are degrees of hate and differences of hate and hate based on race and nationalism and and um uh gender and and so on uh those are those are folks that should not be welcomed in your base and he has taken advantage of the fact that they see him as a hero he's been endorsed by the former head of the Ku Klux Klan and by other white nationalists and he backs away from condemning them and their ideas so their ideas get to flourish and in fact have a cushion. Beto O'Rourke was the former mayor of El Paso and Cory Booker the senator from New Jersey. Uh, Both of them want to be the president, next president of the United States. They've directly in the last hours blamed President Trump for the carnage. They have, in in effect, and uh, to some degree, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, has done the same. At least blaming white nationalism and the the um, the milieu in the United States that that allows it to uh, to circulate and and to flourish. So this time, I think it's different. I think we're turning a corner. I think we're turning a corner in terms of awareness of what. Uh, white supremacy and white nationalism can mean for people's lives, for the fabric of the country. I think, honestly, um, and I say this as an historian, too, I think we've, we're probably are turning a corner on our discussion about guns. Um, I know that it's a cherished right, almost a religion for gun rights uh, people, but as we speak, there's serious disarray in the National Rifle Association, and for anyone, Canadians included, who watched some of the Democratic debates uh, over this past week, you saw that almost every candidate challenged the National Rifle Association or even condemned the National Rifle Association as being out of the mainstream, even with its own members. And so I, I, think, I think we may be at a tipping point here, but a sad way to get there. It is. Now, let me come back to the issue of uh, young white males. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I read a lot overnight, well, early, early in the morning, and uh, talked to a number of people in the last 12 hours. And what I hear again and again is young white males are being radicalized. There's a radicalization crisis underway. This is what I hear again and again. And then when I raise that with other people, they stiffen their backs and they tell me, no, that's not happening. Uh, your thoughts on that radicalizing crisis taking place? The, 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 you know, you, to borrow a cliche, the kids are all right. Um, you know, millennials, Gen Z, I see a lot of positive development. Um, remember, this is the, uh, um, uh, the, the generation that, that, that has experienced, even witnessed gun violence, mm-hmm. um, and that, that in itself is becoming a, a community. But I think that you always have, in a, in a period of dramatic change, some people who can't adjust, either because their psychological makeup doesn't allow them to adjust or because their cultural makeup is such that they can't get accustomed to an America that they've grown up and just come to understand changing, changing before their very eyes. This young fellow in, uh, in El Paso uh, has written about uh, too many Mexicans. He's going to do his part to get rid of, of Mexicans. Um, 
Uh, I'm not sure about what happened detail-wise with the shooter in Dayton, but I've heard that that may be an element of it, too. So I'm not going to blame it on young white males. I'm going to blame it on those folks that just can't adjust to the changes around them. Here's another story. Or psychologically impaired. At least seven, this is from the Chicago Sun-Times, at least seven people were wounded by gunfire early Sunday in Chicago after someone opened fire near a playground on the city's west side uh, in the Douglas Park area. Again, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, authorities said someone shot their weapon from inside a black Chevrolet Camaro uh, on the street. Three women, ages 19, 22, and 25, were transported to the hospital where their conditions were stabilized. Chicago is a city where there's a tremendous amount of... uh, Gunplay and uh, just just uh, stratospheric numbers, but you start to ask yourself: Well, is this is this a direct fallout to what happened, or is this Chicago? We there's so many questions, John. A lot of questions, you know, and I I don't know the details on Chicago. You mm-hmm. you are right. Enormous amount of violence in Chicago comes down to the prevalence of guns. I mean, the 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 argument that has been used is that. If bad people can have guns, then how can good people uh, defend themselves? Well, the fact of the matter is bad people can get guns because it's too easy to get them. And if you have a gun, you're more than likely to kill somebody with a gun than if you don't have So, gun. So El Paso, I'm sorry to interrupt, but so El Paso and, and, and Dayton are a direct result, if I hear you correctly, from your perspective of the gun, the, the gun crisis or the gun issue in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Even to the point where if I have a pistol mm-hmm. or a hunting rifle, I can't kill and wound that many people in a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. But an assault weapon or, um, uh, you know, an, an AK-47, uh, uh, or AK-15, AR-47. Um, I mean, these, these are the sorts of things that are designed as anti-personnel to kill people, to make soup out of them, and and, uh, and and to destroy. And the fact that they're legal or they're very easy to get is very troubling. See, I'm going to get emails now telling me the AR-15 is not uh, a weapon uh, that was, was designed uh, to kill, that it's a hunting rifle. And we get caught up in the in the debate about what is what and what isn't. How is the crisis going to be managed? How is this, how do you, dis, pun intended, how do you disarm this reality that we've witnessed over the last 24 hours? Well, you have to take it in pieces as opposed to just looking at it and saying, this is way too big. Obviously, it's a cultural issue. There are believers in gun rights and those who don't. Obviously, it's an issue of blue states that are liberal and red states that that are conservative. Those are the big things. But where do we find agreement? Uh, Making it harder to buy these kinds of weapons without registration, uh, loopholes at, uh, at, at gun shows or, or private sales. Those can be done limiting the sale. We at one time in this country in the 90s um, uh, forbade the sales of semi-automatic weapons. There's no need for them. I mean, you know, an AK-15 is a, is a hunting weapon. I mean, if you honestly... I'm sorry, this is not meant to be facetious. If you want to make soup out of a deer, then use one of those weapons. But otherwise, uh, it obliterates uh, an animal. It obliterates a a human being. For what? 
This is obviously not your pollster talking right now. No, I hear it. I hear it. I hear it in your voice. I've heard it before. And, uh, and, and, you know, we're all feeling a tremendous amount of emotion over what happened, you more directly than probably us in Canada. But we're all feeling uh, a sense of loss, a sense of there's anger, there's frustration. Now it has to be focused and, 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 and turned into something positive. How we go about that is going to be the key. John, I always appreciate the time. Uh, you were very kind this morning when I called you very early and you agreed to go on the air with us. Thanks so much. Anytime, Roy. Take care. You too. John Zogby, one of the premier pollsters and uh, opinion uh, writers and pundits in the United States. He's the author of We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America. Before we talk to Dr. Zudi Jasser, here's about uh, 20 to 30 seconds of the mayor of Dayton, Ohio, Nan Whaley. If, if Dayton police had not gotten to the shooter in under a minute, and think of that, 30, 26 injured, uh, 9 dead, um, hun- hundreds of people in the Oregon district could be dead today. Again, we don't know the thoughts of the shooter at this time. We know that he w- was wearing body armor and had high-capacity magazines and extra magazines. Nan Whaley, the uh, mayor of Dayton, Ohio. Some organizations are naming the uh, shooters. I prefer not to do that. Some organizations are talking about their manifestos. I prefer not to do that. I couldn't care less about their twisted manifestos. The authorities will look at that, and uh, hopefully some intelligent people will deal with that in an appropriate manner. Dr. Sudi Jasser is the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. He's the past president of the Arizona Medical Association, a nuclear cardiologist, former lieutenant or lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. And uh, we talk to Dr. Jasser on a regular basis, and I'm glad he's joining us today. Zudi, thank you. Thank you very much. What is what? What are you feeling the day after El Paso and Dayton? Well, thanks for having, thanks for having me, Roy. And uh, you know, I think just as in every uh, attack that we've had, and we lost all this innocent life, and our prayers are important. We now have to move to action, and that is, our country has to come together, and we have to realize that this is a war of extremes and the extreme of the white supremacist, nationalist-type ideology needs to be confronted. The president needs to take the lead on this and uh, say that we have to root out this ideology. There are already in his own administration uh, um, acts that have been taken that uh, have recognized in their own strategy against counterterrorism in in our country. They've identified white supremacism. It just hasn't been put front and center. It's part of the White House strategy, but hasn't been put front and center. It needs to happen, and I think now's when we need to do that to come together as a nation. And like you said, the manifestos are usually crazy, and it doesn't make any a point in, in, in bringing more of it out than we need. But we realize that within these ideologies are from the extremes on both sides of the equation. There are some people who turn these tragedies into political arguments. You're either for the right or you're for the left, and if you're... If you take a position that people don't like, they don't talk to you about what happened. They talk to you about what they're angry about. And uh, and I've seen some emails already 
accusing me of not being fair to Donald Trump. Um, It's not about Donald Trump, although Donald Trump has a responsibility, as you said. I mean, he's the president of the United States. Whichever way you slice it, you're at the the leadership position in the government. You're the one who's responsible for leading the country. And this is a crisis situation, and this president has a responsibility. Absolutely. And and that responsibility, I think, just as he has tweet storms, about uh, various things that uh, he gets upset about or, or feels the country should be happy about. Now is a time in which he should be healer-in-chief, but also make it apparent that within the conservative movement, we are going to declare war on white supremacism, fascism, and Aryanism, whatever it might be. They have no home in our movement, and it's not just something that uh, we marginalize or dismiss. Just as I, as a Muslim, talking to you so many times, have taken ownership of radical Islamism, and that even though many Islamists are nonviolent, their anti-Semitism, anti-Westernism feeds that. The nativism and uh, anti-immigration sentiment within many in the American community, be it in the right or left, has fed some of the sentiment that creates this violent response. Are racial and religious tensions boiling over in the United States? That's a great question. I, I think it seems that they are because the broad, the, the, the bandwidth, if you will, of pro-immigration, of, of, the, of the ideas that would melt the, the radicalism away has not filled that bandwidth. So as a result, there seems to be a boiling point of a war of the extremes. And the only way we can fight that is to take the bandwidth, to take the mic, and to begin to have, I mean, tomorrow the NSC, the uh, uh, Department of Intelligence, and others can begin to have a prioritization of attacking the things that are easy to do, sort of the low-hanging fruit of national security that we've just not been doing. And if we did that, I think the answer to your question would become much more clear. Uh, we're going to be talking with, uh, with David Fraser. He's one of Canada's leading Internet and privacy lawyers in a few minutes, Zudi. Uh, and and he is going to talk to us about what's going on online, social media, and, and the radicalizing that seems to be taking place on those social media sites. But do you do you see uh, that in this case we're talking about young white males and and white nationalists? Do you see that these young men, predominantly, I think, I haven't been on any of the sites, so I don't know, but do you think they're radicalizing each other? Well, there is a connecting process happening. Uh, this guy, uh, if, his manifest, if his manifesto is his, his first sentence was about Christchurch in New Zealand, and I was there in Australia when that happened. And uh, the bottom line is is there is some type of uh, sense of uh, connectivity for those who are against immigration, those who believe that uh, violence is the answer, and uh, we need to root out the ideological progenitors of that. And I think as a doctor, I would tell you, we need to look at uh, the psychological root cause of this, be it psychiatric illness, be it uh, the prevalence of uh, loneliness among the the current generation, and also the gamification, if you will, of all this, where video games and other things have also contributed to this. So it's a multi-tiered approach to this that starts with a counterterrorism approach that stops in its feet at immediately the, the violent aspects of it. What do parents tell their kids? Well, I think the number one thing I tell my kids is uh, freedom is never free. 
and that ultimately, no matter where you live, human nature is, uh, for the most part, good, but there's also evil. We can never clean our society out of the evil, and we must confront it in whatever way we can. But part of the price of freedom is to come together with those who share your values against those who do not. I was uh, trading emails with a friend earlier this morning, and uh, he made the point to me that we we collectively, uh, Americans, Canadians, it's happening in other parts of the world as well, should have seen this coming and had plenty of, of uh, opportunity, plenty of warning to take, to take steps, to take actions. And his concern was that we'll have, and I always talk in 72-hour time periods, for the first 24 hours we're all really, really involved with an issue. The next 24 hours we're a little less involved, and after 72 hours we move on. Seems to be the pattern. And his concern is that we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again until the situation spirals completely out of control. Because, and I just want to finish the thought, because there's always an opportunity for somebody to gain something by not following up for too long on an issue that is troublesome. There's, there's, there's gain if you follow up immediately, and then there's gain by letting it go. That was his concern, and I think there's some validity to that. You're 100% right, and it's sad. I, I see this in fighting Islamism, that be it the powers that be globally or domestically with foreign lobbies or, or domestic identity groups have prevented us from treating the disease, the ideology of political Islam. And same thing when it comes to white supremacism uh, and fascism and, and other anti-immigration ideas. Uh, we confront the violent attacks for a few days, and then the politicians slip back into their comfort zone, which is pandering and a lack of leadership. And we need to look back at the history of our countries, be it uh, what we fought for at our foundings in our Civil War or else. After that, it was related to courage against the majoritocracy, but to protect minority views that were the bedrock of who we are as countries. Zudi, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Uh, we, we seem to be, as I said to my previous guest, John Zogby, we seem to be talking more and more at times that are extremely disturbing. That seems to be the pattern, and I hope we can break out of that. Great to talk to you as always. Thank you, Zudi. Amen. Thank you. Dr. Zudi Jasser is a nuclear cardiologist, past president of the Arizona Medical Association, former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy and a founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. I'll never forget when Mr. Trudeau and Brad Wall, the former premier of Saskatchewan, at a premier's conference, were talking, and Mr. Trudeau was (laughs) talking about how they're going to collect money from Saskatchewan farmers, and then they're going to give it back. And Mr. Wall looked at Mr. Trudeau and said, so what's the point? And we got that drinking out of cardboard plastic bottles look. Anyway, the Saskatchewan government is applying to have its Supreme Court of Canada hearing on the constitutionality of the federal carbon tax pushed back a bit. Uh, An email from the Ministry of Justice says that LaLaye would help Saskatchewan coordinate its legal challenge with similar ones Coming from other provinces, the top court was tentatively set to hear the case on the 5th of December. That's a story from Canadian Press. Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe. Mr. Premier, thank you very much for the time. Always good to talk to you. And uh, what's the status 
now, right now, of the carbon tax appeal Saskatchewan is leading? Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you uh, as well, Roy. I appreciate it very much. Uh, uh, where, the, where the carbon tax uh, case, the Supreme Court case is right now, is we've made an application and making an application in the process of that to uh, to have the uh, the case uh, delayed uh, to some degree uh, so that we can uh, discuss with the the other uh, six provinces uh, that have uh, have put forward uh, an intervention uh, into this case. It's actually eight of ten provinces are are intervening or actively involved in this case. Saskatchewan, obviously, and, and uh, six others have intervened on Saskatchewan's side uh, with more than, uh, totaling more than 50% of the population here in the nation. So, uh, you know, a, uh, the majority of uh, the, uh, the the Canadians are, are asking the question most assuredly, uh, not specific to the carbon tax, but, but more specific to, uh, you know, this federal intrusion into provincial boundaries and you know, the, the real question is, is if, if they're willing to do it here, and, and we talk often of the impacts this will have on a resource-based economy like Saskatchewan or, or even Alberta, um, but if they're able, if the federal government is able to intrude in this provincial area in this case, um, what's really to stop them from intruding in, in other areas that have traditionally been a provincial jurisdiction as well? And that is uh, the concern of now, uh, um, you know, over half of the provinces and uh, representing over half the population. I think it's fair to ask, is this all about just about the carbon tax for the federal government? Or is it just, it's really about them wanting to open the door and provide themselves an opportunity to interfere with provinces in areas where they constitutionally shouldn't be allowed to do so? Well, absolutely. I, you know, I think of education and, and uh, the curriculum and the education that we provide uh, here in this province. You've heard of the relationship in healthcare with the uh, federal health transfers, the Canada Health Act, and, again, particular, uh, uh, re- particularly relevant to Saskatchewan in, in the fact that we have uh, offered some private uh, diagnostics uh, through, the, uh, th- through the public system. Um, and and the federal government looking to uh, you, you know weigh in and, and hold back ultimately some of our, our health care transfers uh, in that case. So um, you know or, or you know for something very pertinent to the province of Quebec is is with respect to some of the language and language rights uh, that they have uh, eternally really uh, stood up for uh, governments of all stripes in that province uh, again. Uh, you know, if, if the federal government is able to intrude into this provincial area in this particular case, which is a great concern to Saskatchewan and Saskatchewan's economy, um, I really, and, and, this is, and if this decision is held up by the, by the Supreme Court, there was a split decision at the provincial court, but if it is held up by the Supreme Court, um, there's nothing saying that the federal government won't be able to walk on provincial uh, uh, rights and, wa- and walk into areas of provincial jurisdiction at will. And I think you are seeing uh, attorney generals from across the nation, uh, many of them gathered in Saskatchewan last week, uh, starting to realize the full impacts of, uh, of uh, whether or not the Supreme Court, uh, um, how, how that decision turns out. Isn't it remarkable, though, when, when you also look at the numbers of provinces that are on side and supporting Saskatchewan, you have a very diverse group of provinces that might not necessarily agree on issues of the, the, for example, have to do with energy. And yet here they are all saying the same thing Saskatchewan is saying. This move by Ottawa is not just about the carbon tax, just the idea of the move they're making frightens us. It, it, it certainly does. And, and it, you know, when it comes to energy and, and the impact that it will have on energy, it, it's, it's nothing. It'll, it'll move the energy uh, to other areas of the world to get the energy production that's happening already with uh, direct and foreign direct investment that is being channeled south of the 49th parallel. You know, you know but it reminds me of, a, of an, an announcement I was at just last week at Gibson Energy in the community of Moose Jaw. 
where they increased their their output at that refinery by by 30 percent. They did so without increasing their greenhouse gas emissions uh, by one pound. Uh, they they actually are taking about 20 to 25 percent of uh, the greenhouse gas emissions out of each and every barrel of oil, not the incremental 30 percent, but each and every barrel of oil coming out of that that plant. That plant that refinery is actually fed by by uh, energy out of southwestern Saskatchewan that is now uh, a company like Crescent Point using uh, zero emission wellhead sites. They're using solar power to to uh, to power their wellhead sites. There's uh, the water flood technology that is happening uh, down in that area that is some of the most sustainable uh, production produce pr- production methods available. Um, that's that's the Canadian energy that we are producing uh, here in Western Canada, and a carbon tax is going to move that south of the border, and it's going to take away the good work that a company like Gibson Energy has, has essentially done. Um, that being said, uh, this argument at the Supreme Court in the case that we are putting forward is is yes about the impact this carbon tax will have on on the province of Saskatchewan, but it's also about the impact uh, that this this decision could have in the federal government intruding into areas of provincial jurisdiction. This is not this is not cooperative federalism. This is not how our nation, uh, the foundation on which our nation was built. Well, it seemed to me that when when all the premiers and you signed the letter or, or six premiers sent a, right. a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau uh, on the issue of, uh, of energy, and uh, he dismissed what you had done as really being... I thought he just more or less said it was an annoyance to him that you're not really permitted to annoy Mr. Trudeau, and that, that just seemed to be what I got like, stop bothering me, I'm, I know what I'm doing, you people are just annoying. But when you look at what Saskatchewan's done and what you're doing, you've had this uh, carbon capture system in place for for a number of years, and it's actually doing, if I understand it correctly, it's doing more than Trudeau wants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the carbon capture and storage at Boundary Dam 3 is a world-leading uh, technology, first-generation technology. Uh, we're moving beyond uh, that generation now into much more efficient uh, opportunities to utilize carbon capture and storage, uh, not only on coal-fired power in, in areas around the world, and there are, I believe, about 1,800 uh, coal-fired plants that are, are being planned and built around the world. And, and, I mean, look at the opportunities to share that innovation with other areas of the world. Look at the opportunities to share the innovation in, in all of the industries that we have across this nation, whether it be agriculture, energy production, whether it be auto manufacturing or or even the manufacturing of, of, of aerospace uh, uh, products uh, or, or, or jets, if you will, in, in the province of Quebec. This is... Uh, the, the innovation and 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 the, the research that has went into how Saskatchewan manufactures and produces our products uh, most certainly is our opportunity. Uh, to, and I guess the sustainability of how we we do just that is the opportunity uh, to share that that innovation with the rest of the world through commerce. This is the opportunity Canada has. This is what we have always brought to the table. Um, what our what our prime minister at the moment is doing is trying to tax our industries into submission, tax hardworking Canadians, and, and uh, we're concerned obviously with all Canadians, but those in Saskatchewan, uh, tax us into prosperity. And I I don't know about you, Roy, but I've never seen that be successful. No, actually, Premier, I haven't either, and I don't anticipate it ever will be. And no. it's it's just you're doing exactly what should be expected. Uh, as far as carbon capture is concerned, so I, I think really it is, and I've had this, I, this, I've been convinced of this for a long time. It really is about the prob- the federal government having opening the door, in uh, and having the opportunity and the right to interfere in jurisdiction, which has exclusively been that of the provinces until now. 
May I ask you just one other question that has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now? And that is what's going on in El Paso, uh, in uh, in Texas, and also in Dayton, Ohio. These these horrible mass shootings. What's your takeaway from that? Well, this this is this is awful. Uh, what is happening uh, in, in, in both in in El Paso, Texas, as well as Dayton, Ohio? I think we're over. What are we? Twenty nine uh, fatalities. Over fifty uh, people have been injured. And and what is all of that is awful in itself. And what is even more awful, and what needs to be denounced uh, across North America, and I believe it is is being denounced is is it seems that possibly at least one of these uh, incidents was was driven by by hate or by you know racially racially motivated and there is no place uh, for that in north america around the world and, and most certainly uh, not here in saskatchewan and we have had our our conversation uh, in saskatchewan uh, with respect to uh to uh, with respect to uh, uh racially motivated uh, crimes if you will and uh, you know i would i would just say this and i think there's 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 something in, in this story for for all of us to to hear saskatchewan's motto is it's from many people's strengths, and we most certainly uh, need to do better in our province and across North America in, in living uh, by those words. We in Saskatchewan per capita likely have one of the larger Aboriginal uh, populations in the nation. Uh, we just grew over the last decade about 175,000 people in our province. It's an unprecedented growth for, for our province, uh, the most the largest sustained growth that we've had in, in over 70 years. 108,000 of those individuals came from 90, over 90 different countries around the world. And, uh, um, you know, we most certainly are a province from many people's strengths. And I, I think those words, uh, you know, can, can weigh heavy on us uh, across North America at this time. Yeah. Well said, Premier. Thank you very much for the time. Good talking to you, Wallace. Take care, Roy. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan on the Roy Green Show. Now, uh, how much does the average Canadian family pay in taxes? Well, since we're just talking taxes... And carbon taxes with Premier Mo. How much does the average Canadian family pay in taxes? And how has that uh, number changed over the years? Let's say from 1961, assuming some of you have been around since 1961 paying taxes, and uh, and you're still paying taxes. By the way, if you're over, what is it, 65? If you're over 65, and you make uh, more than 70 grand. They seriously claw back on your, your old age security. That's what the government does. Of course, the MPs get their wonderful pension, but to hell with the rest of us. Uh, Finn Poshman is the resident scholar of the Fraser Institute, and the Fraser Institute released a study, a report on Thursday about the uh, average Canadian family's taxes paid. Finn, thank you for coming on the show, and, and, and walk us through this. What do we need to know? Roy, uh, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, the bottom line is uh, we've done the numbers again. We like to do these every year to right. remind people what uh, uh, what we pay for and uh, how that compares to our incomes. And uh, if you look back for the, for the past year, an average or a representative family, so it's all in, uh, had income of about $89,000. And uh, what's interesting, and that's, that's a key point, is that uh, if you count all of the taxes together, that family was also paying a bit over uh, $39,000 in, uh, in total taxes, or about 44% of their income. Wow. How does, and, that, how does that compare over, say, 20 years well, ago, 10 years well, ago? It's, uh, well, there, there are a couple of ways to looking at, look at it. 
uh, one, and this, uh, you know, some of us can always be surprised. I can always be surprised to note that in recent years, that tax bill is a lot higher than what we pay on uh, food, shelter, and clothing taken together, uh, which is only about uh, uh, 36% of our income. So, uh, so let's go back. Uh, you mentioned 1961. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, theoretically, I remember it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so back then, you know, the government was different. The, the economy was smaller. Uh, our incomes were lower, and uh, we paid a lot less, uh, uh, you know, share of income then. And uh, and it adds up, or rather, it's it, it's changed a lot. So if you, if you think about it, you know, the cost of living has gone up, uh, say, about uh, tw- 22 times, uh, rather, sorry, uh, seven and a half times since mm-hmm. 1961, uh, but your tax bill has gone up by about 22 and a half times. And so uh, the, your, your cost of everything else rolled in has gone up a lot, of course. You know, we've had inflation, our incomes have grown, our, our real incomes have grown over a couple of generations. Uh, tax bill has uh, increased many more times than that. So our uh, our real income, our on a percentage basis, if we compare 1961 to 2018, the family in 1961 versus the family of last year, the family of 1961 had more disposable income. Well, that's right. So uh, the uh, back in 61, you spent about 33, uh, a bit over 33 percent of the family's income in taxes. Uh, but your your necessities, food, clothes clothing and shelter cost a lot more, over 56% of, uh, of household income. So are we talking so, about a steadily upward-moving graph? I mean, it's just uh, constantly going up. Yeah, mostly. Uh, the, the big shift uh, was between the 60s and the 80s when uh, we started uh, asking uh, governments to do a lot more, and, and they did. Uh, we have a lot of programs. We have a lot of supports we didn't used to do. So that uh, most of the growth has uh, took place between... Uh, through over the course of the 80s. It's, uh, the share has moved around a bit less then, uh, but yeah, uh, the, uh, our tax bill certainly uh, has been going up year over year, uh, some years uh, faster than our income, some years a bit slower, but yes, yeah, it's, it's mostly growing uh, uh, about, uh, at least as fast as the economy. So if you think about it, and here's, 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 here's one of the ways I like to look at it. Uh, food and clothing. Uh, they used to cost us a lot compared to uh, the average worker's weekly wage, you know, industrial workers, uh, food and clothing, and uh, you know, uh, getting, your, getting your kids dressed and food in their mouths took up a big share of your income. Uh, over the decades, we've got a lot more productive, real wages have gone up, and that, uh, that share of your household bill for, for the average family has gone down a lot. Uh, but the tax bill didn't. The tax share has uh, has gone up. So all the gains, all of the, you know, the things that uh, uh, we've learned about how to do stuff more efficiently, how to ship food and clothing around and, and do stuff better and cheaper, uh, we benefit from that. Uh, but we don't see the same thing happening with government. Yeah, well, and uh, we know bu- budgets balance themselves and... Uh... <laughs> we, we, know, we know that balancing the budget in 2019 was cast in stone, so... I I, I I knew what was coming. I saw the report and I thought, yeah, yeah, yep. I know exactly what's happening to my money. Yeah, so th- these these are big numbers. They are uh, big numbers and they're significant. For, it's important for people to know. And that, well, that's that's uh, that's part of it. So you'll uh, a lot of us 
and and you'll you'll hear this regularly when you when you when when you Roy get some pushback, say, look, I'm I'm happy to pay my taxes. I get good services from government. I don't mind paying a little more for my health care and education, and that's okay. Uh, some people might be satisfied with the deal they get. Uh, you might the uh, the child benefits or seniors benefits if you get them. If you that get might them, be really important to you, yeah, yeah. and that's fair enough. Finn, I have you to. You can't even begin to make a judgment if you don't know what the numbers are. I appreciate the time. It's fascinating stuff. It's on the Fraser Institute website. And always good talking to you, Finn. Thank you for the time. You as well, right? Finn Poshman from the Fraser Institute. You can find uh, you can find the information on uh, their website and if I, FraserInstitute.org. That's what it is. I wanted to make sure it was .org. FraserInstitute.org. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.